Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's women in the academy and professions. Giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and our guest for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond is Sheila Wise Rowe. Sheila is a graduate of Tufts University and Cambridge College with a master's degree in counseling psychology. For over 25 years, she has counseled abuse and trauma survivors in the United States and has also ministered to homeless and abused women and children in Johannesburg, South Africa, where she also taught counseling and trauma-related courses for a decade. Sheila is the executive director of the Rehoboth House and the co-founder of the Cyrene Movement, an online community for people of color seeking healing for racial trauma. She is the author of The Well of Life, Heal Your Pain, Satisfy Your Thirst, Live Your Purpose, along with The Wonder Years. She lives in the Boston area where she is a writer, counselor, speaker, and spiritual director. We are so grateful to have Sheila with us on the podcast to share about her new book, Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience, as well as to offer her thoughts specifically to our community of women in higher education. Thank you, Sheila, so much for being our guest on the podcast today. With most of our audience being women in academia, can you begin by sharing briefly about your educational background as well as how that has influenced who you are today? Well, I have a bachelor's in sociology and psychology and then went on and got a master's in education in counseling psychology. So I got the master's degree, practiced for quite a bit. I initially started as a, a social worker, actually. Okay. Um, so I worked with the state, and it was at that time the Department of, I think it was just Department of Social Services was the name. It's changed since then, but uh, so my role was really with working with families, families in crises, um, and often involved like court involvement. And the counseling part was a little bit minimal. So I have a master's in counseling psychology, and I have over the years practiced it, counseling and not practiced, a number of years doing adjunct work at area colleges, um, teaching psychology, mostly intro to to psych courses. And um, I also taught at the Africa Peace Institute in South Africa. Okay. We lived in Johannesburg for 10 years, from 2005 until 2016. So I've always had kind of my foot in the academic space, as well as just a very grounded community level, worked for the Department of Social Services. I've worked in various arenas, um, secular and Christian, children, families, uh, a lot of couples, couples work and individual work done a lot of work in trauma and um, particularly with women, sexual abuse survivors. Yeah. So that's kind of a, I've lived in kind of both spaces and that just has been a continual, continual thing in my life. And so uh, geographically, where are you now? So I, right now I am in the Boston area. So that's, I was born in Boston. I'm a Boston girl, went to undergrad and graduate school here. And we felt the call to South Africa in 2005, and we'd already formed partnerships with churches and organizations there when we first went in 2001. And yeah, so we moved, husband, I, two children, and we were there for almost 10 years, a little over 10 years, actually. Great. And can you share a little bit about your spiritual background and faith journey as well and how that has shaped who you are? Yeah. So I... Um, grew up in a home where my parents were members of the Nation of Islam for a little bit. So this was in the 60s. Okay. And that experience, I think in some ways shaped, I was very young at the time. So I, I do know that I attended meetings and things with them, but I'm not really aware of what the content was. Mm-hmm. They were members until um, the uh, murder of Malcolm X. And then they, they left the Nation of Islam. Um, they weren't really anything for a while. And, and then my parents split. My mother eventually became a Christian and we would attend church, but it really wasn't, it wasn't really it was a social thing for me. It really, mm. I believed that there was a God, but how that translated into how I lived my life or the choices I made, I, that connection was just not clear to me. And so I was not a practicing Christian throughout my undergraduate 
years and and even afterwards i became a christian in 1984 this was after it was a very tumultuous time for me and i kind of was burnt out from my first job as a social worker and i was really kind of grappling with okay what you know what is life about and what's my place in it i'd always been the kind of person who you know had a level of determination like i'm going to you know, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get a job. And mm-hmm. I was, you know, I had very um, a difficult relationship. I was in with an addict and <laughs> that kind of okay. pushed me over the edge as well. And I came to a place where it was like, okay, who's in control? If, if I'm not in control, then God has to be in control. And it was at that point that I surrendered my life to, to Jesus. And, and it's been that way since. It's an Wonderful. Calendar. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious then too, how your time in South Africa kind of shaped your faith. Yeah. South Africa was was really, I think it was the first time that I actually encountered believers. And it may have been because of the church that I was attending. It was um, an every nation church um, in Johannesburg. And there was just a high level of faith and high level of belief that God is going to show up that he's going to do something, that he's real, that he's active in our lives. And and not that I didn't get that from the churches before, but it was not just said, like I actually saw it. I saw Mm -hmm. people really pursuing God and really wanting to figure out like, how how do you live this life? Uh, You know, knowing that God is with you. And so, you know, there were lots of opportunities to pray for people and actually see prayers be answered. Mm -hmm. There was a high level of faith, I think, partly because of the level of struggle that's there and that still remains. Uh, A lot of trauma, some of it, many, much of it is like the legacy of apartheid. Sure. And and so that really shaped my faith and having to trust God for a lot of things, for provision. You know, we were initially missionaries and having to raise support. So for, for provision on that level, but also just this sense that Johannesburg has a very high crime rate and trusting God for our safety. And, you know, we had two young children and, you know, having to really rely on the Lord and also on community. And so we really were knitted into that community. On that level, it was a wonderful experience. On another level, coming back, I realized that there's a level of stress that, and, and just kind of living with trauma that mm-hmm. people just endure. And so coming back here and kind of standing down, as it were, of, you know, having this moment to kind of breathe and reflect, realizing that, wow, that, that was a lot. There was a lot mm-hmm. of very traumatic things that happened to people around us, people we're ministering to. And yet people there are incredibly strong, incredibly creative, and incredibly resilient in a way that I don't see here. So it strengthened my faith in a way and it challenged my faith. Thank you for sharing about that. It sounds like there's a lot there to Mm -hmm. unpack more, right? And just as you were sharing, the word resilience came to mind even before you shared it. I'm curious too, as a licensed professional counselor, how you would say your faith informs your work. Well, so in terms of my journey as a counselor, my initial work I was getting jobs in the social work sphere, which was interesting Mm -hmm. because that wasn't my actual degree. And I think partly because of the sociology bent. So I often was in settings where, you know, there were families who were in crises and so, and whether it was educationally, you know, emotionally and spiritually. And, and there are ways in which it took a much more of a sociological bent, even towards justice kind of a bent. Um, Mm -hmm. And I had to really, grapple with the fact that I'm a Christian, I'm in this secular setting, and what does that look like in terms of me ministering to people who may not believe what I believe, and, you know, according to the rules, I shouldn't be talking about certain things. And so that was a bit of a challenge, but one where, uh, you know, if, if my clients, whether it was a kid or whether it was an adult, went there around issues of faith, then we engaged on that level. And what I saw was that whether it was a secular setting or a Christian setting was that when God was involved, when Jesus was acknowledged in that space, that there came a certain peace for 
for me and for the mm. client that I was uh, ministering to. And there was a sense of, of God going directly to the underlying issue and the root causes of things. Whereas I believe in secular counseling, people can get at stuff. They can, it can be a vehicle that, you know, can be used for healing. What I've seen is that when God is in the mix, it just accelerates the amount of growth and just kind of clearing away some of the fog and getting at what the core issues are. Sure. So counseling methods in tandem with Jesus as the source of healing as well. Yes. Likewise, how would you say your work as a counselor has shaped or influenced your faith? Well, I I think that in a way it's it's grounded me in reality, the reality of the gospel that we are being we're being perfected. You know, it's a journey. It's a journey and it's not a once off because I think when you're not in this kind of a field where you're not seeing people in the, you know, the day-to-day struggles, it's easy to kind of jump to some conclusions about, you know, that, that a person just needs to confess their sins and then their life miraculously changes. And, and on mm-hmm. a spiritual level, it does, but on a living it out, like, you know, then how shall we live level, mm-hmm. it's one where we're learning, you know, our minds are being renewed over time. And so... I see that in a very clear way in counseling, that people are in process. God is patient with us and he's working with us. He says he's begun a good work in us and that he's faithful to complete it. And so, and in that way, it's just really validated that point when I see people move from one place where they're really bound and fearful and angry and, or, you know, even bogged down with with grief or any number of of feelings having to deal with trauma and and God really meeting them and moving them to a place of greater peace and you know levels of healing that's really speaks to my faith and Mm. that God is is at work yeah and so you mentioned trauma a few times already and so let's talk about your book you recently wrote healing racial trauma the road to resilience can you share a little bit about what led you to write this book and what your hopes are for it as it goes out into the world yeah so i i really believe that it's like the culmination of a lot of work that i've done over the years and you know whether it was trauma work in the secular sphere, some early work in the 80s and dealing with folk who were dealing with HIV, Um, Mm. uh, the early work that I was doing with uh, women who were sexual abuse survivors in the church, which, you know, in Boston, there really wasn't really many people dealing with that. And later, a lot of group work, the experiences in South Africa, all of that kind of culminating with coming back from South Africa and realizing that there was a lot of things that had shifted. And I write in the book about some of the really difficult experiences that I had, my family members. I share other stories of friends of mine who experienced racism and racial trauma in their lifetime. But what I saw when I came back in 2016 was just, it seemed like there was a permission given like a blanket permission to say and do whatever. And, and you know, some people can may say that, you know, it's, it was just exposing what was always there. That's true mm. to a certain extent. But it also, in some ways, felt like it was normalizing behaviors that were actually inflicting trauma on other people, and particularly people of color. Mm-hmm. And... And there, you know, there, there was starting to be a conversation about racial trauma. There had been some earlier research done on it, but it really wasn't um, in the forefront. And I, I think that as a result of the election cycle and post-election, it has mm-hmm. uh, come into the forefront because people are, are really struggling. And, you know, with the advent of social media, you know, we're constantly bombarded with incidents we're having to deal with our own, you know, incidents right. of racism and race, racial trauma. But then we're, we're witnessing stuff and we're having random, whether it's news feeds or whatever, that is that is is compounding the trauma that we're experiencing. And so I really, just in prayer, really felt a sense of, yeah, all of these experiences that I've had, um, my experience as a counselor, like this is something that I need to speak into this space. 
Mm. And so that was the the impetus for for it. And then what are your hopes for its message as it goes out into the world? Well, I I feel like for people of color, we often have to deal with the stigma around um, emotional health and struggles on the emotional level are something that it's not commonly dealt with. Mm -hmm. And in many ways it it is stigmatized. And so it's really showing that, you know, we can have struggles and we can struggle around the racism that we face. We don't have to stuff it down or pretend that it didn't happen or minimize it, that Mm -hmm. we can actually look at it, look at how is this affecting my life? How is it affecting my relationships? We can be open about it. We can look at, and look for support to actually work through that. And, and mm-hmm. so my hope for people of color is that this would be an opportunity to to really identify themselves in the stories and to really, in looking at the stories and seeing examples of how a particular person processed racism they experienced or the racial trauma mm-hmm. that, you know, I too can can do the same. I too can reach out for support. And I feel like for the white readers, that it really is an opportunity to see that racism and um, and racial trauma happens, kind of the impact of it happens on a continuum. So, you know, there's a lot of narrative about, you know, whether it's slavery, that, oh, that was such a long time ago, and, mm-hmm. and kind of a dismissal of that when the reality is it, one, it wasn't that long ago. And right. secondly... You know, you see the residual f- effects in a family line. And I certainly have seen that in, in my own family. So one, it's it wasn't that long ago. It currently does have an impact. And a better understanding and a better empathy for the journey of people of color, whether, you know, they're African-American, Asian. I have in my book, these are all, these are friends of mine, but their stories is, you know, Japanese man, there's a Latina, there's, um, there's even a South African woman, a biracial man. In, in these stories, they will get a sense of, of an individual's journey and the impact that the racism has had in people's lives mm-hmm. over generations and, and what needs to happen, not just what needs to happen for the person to heal, but what is your role, you know, as a white person in that? You know, so it's, it's developing a greater empathy. Uh, right figuring out how to be a better ally even in that story. And, you know, it may kick up even your own trauma, um, things that need to be attended to. Throughout the book, through these stories, there likely will be a lot of our listeners who resonate with some of those stories, whether it be microaggressions or Mm -hmm. racial trauma or even sexual assault or Mm -hmm. harassment. What thoughts would you offer women women in particular, since that's most of our audience, Mm -hmm. in processing those experiences. And as you mentioned, receiving support or counseling, when would you suggest a person seek professional counseling? You know, I'm a, as a counselor, obviously, (laughs) a proponent of counseling, um, but I I also am a realist in that one, we we are dealing with stigma, but at the same time, there really aren't enough counselors. Mm -hmm. And so even though there's this big kind of push like, yes, we need counseling. You need to go to counseling. There aren't enough counselors. And so we've got to figure out what are the, you know, the different stages of intervention and really shoring up those. So whether it is simply you need to tell one person who's safe, uh, you know, that you can trust, that can, you know, listen and can pray with you. Are you able to access some of the supports in your church? If things are getting really bad, that these things that you've, you know, you've attempted to, to get help from, and some people are just, you know, they're watching YouTube videos or they're listening to, listening to podcasts or whatever. Right. And it, you know, and it is offering some level of um, solace or helping them to kind of parse through what happened and what, what the way forward is for them. But if it starts to affect how they, they're living their lives then it's time to really take that seriously. And if they have insurance, to be able to speak to somebody. And so as a Christian, you know, you may want to have a Christian counselor. I think Mm -hmm. that that's perfectly reasonable. Someone who really understands your faith. But if that's not possible, I'd rather someone speak to somebody than nobody. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And, And there's certain issues that 
you know, someone's dealing with trauma from sexual abuse or, you know, they've experienced some traumatic racist incident and there's racial trauma that is starting to affect their sleep and their ability to work and take care of their family, they need to do it immediately. They need to get counseling. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for those thoughts. A lot of people maybe wouldn't even know how to find a counselor. Like where do you even begin? What would you suggest for that process? I get referrals all over the place. I mean, they're coming from different parts of the country even. And and in some ways, a lot of the seminaries in the area do have a counseling list. So that that's one place to check in with. Okay. Some churches will have a referral list. Our church has that. And then if, you, if you're somewhere in some part of the country where there isn't a seminary, there isn't those resources, Psychology Today actually has a list of, of counselors, including Christian ones who explicitly say that they're Christians. And so if you go on their website, you'll be able to find some stuff. Yeah. So psychologytoday.com. Yes. Yeah. Psychologytoday.com. Also the American Association of Christian Counselors. They have a list of referral counselors that they refer or would recommend. So there's no guarantee that there's going to be someone in your area but increasingly, therapists are doing online counseling. So um, there's a there's a way to get some help somehow, even even if you can't sit across from someone. Okay, great. Yeah, that's a great start for people to even know where to begin. And those yeah. websites can get people going if they need to. Also, I'm curious to hear about your thoughts on the role that intersectionality plays in healing from racial trauma, particularly considering gender, socioeconomic status, marital status, or other factors that might cause someone to be further marginalized. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, as people of color, we're not a monolith. If you look at the different groups and there are definitely levels of of trauma that we experience. But I feel like I steer away from that. Although I do talk about it, I feel like, you know, if racism is kind of baked into the cake. It really doesn't matter in a way. And that, and I don't want to say that it's irrelevant because it is relevant, but I can look at someone else of color and say, well, you know, okay, that Asian person is not going to experience what I experience as an African American you know, particularly if I was an African-American male and the engagements with the police. And it's likely that Mm. that's not going to happen as frequently as it would happen for a male. Mm -hmm. However, because racism is baked in the cake, eventually the slice that the Asian man or woman takes, the man takes, it's going to, it's going to hit them on some level. And that, and that's kind of is shown in in my book and the stories that I'm sharing. Yeah. I, I purposely want to um, move away from this way in which we, as people of color, have kind of been pitted against each other. And in terms of like, well, who, who's experienced the worst? And am I, I'm worse off. And, and there are ways in which it's been strategic and that we kind of are jockeying or even climbing over each other when the reality is racism has affected every one of us. Mm-hmm. And yes, to varying degrees, but it has affected every one of us. And we need to look at that and the commonalities of that. If there's any any hope in terms of our experiencing personal healing, but interpersonal healing and then impacting society as a whole. Mm-hmm. Kind of related, several chapters of the book I noticed are titled with different emotions, mm-hmm. such as rage and shame and fear. Uh, often in the church, right, rage and anger have been labeled as emotions that are sinful or bad. And even as you're talking about sort of pitting against one another, mm-hmm. even the idea of, the, you know, the stereotypical angry black woman or whatever, yeah. right? I'd be curious to hear more of your thoughts regarding anger and rage, especially as it might relate to women who have experienced injustice. Yeah. In my experience in working with women, I've always felt like the anger and rage is is there. And if you look at the circumstances, it's appropriate mm-hmm. that there would be anger around it. So whether it is racial trauma, some kind of race-based incident, or whether there's been some kind of um, violation, that that anger is legitimate. But that anger is also not the only thing. There's also a level of grief 
there's a level of shame. There are lots of layers of, of emotion that are connected to that. And oftentimes what we only see is the, the anger um, and the rage because that does, it's, it's kind of like an insulation and it protects, mm. it presents like a, a power, a strength, uh, kind of a walling off from further hurt and injury. And so the task is always to help the, the woman to unpack, well, what, what is the anger about? What part of it is legitimate? Mm-hmm. And anger is an emotion God gave us. You know, there are points where Jesus was angry. The question is, you know, the scripture says, in your anger, do not sin. It's like, well, what do we do with that anger? What is it? What is the anger? You know, what else is there emotionally? Um, what do we do with this anger? How do we, as scripture says, to take every thought captive and making a subject to Christ and saying, Jesus, okay, I'm enraged. I'm taking this thought, this feeling, and I'm bringing it to you. And I'm saying, what, what is this? What do I need to do with this? Hmm. Rather than are just kind of going and deciding what we want to do with it. You know, whether we want to combat rage or anger by, by lashing out. I feel like for, for Black women, because we have been silenced um, so often and, and our voices are not heard, that sometimes we do have to get bigger in order to be heard. And that's unfortunate. And I think because we're not heard generally, when we see a, a Black woman become bigger in terms of whether it's her voice or her presence or whatever, it's like, ah, this is, you know, this is the angry Black woman trope. They're mm-hmm. all angry and that, that's not it. There's no way that we're all angry all the time because we're not. Um, right. So in terms of how to handle the anger, it really is one of being able to process that with the Lord, to process that with, with others as well. Friends, um, having those safe spaces where you're able to, to vent. And work is not the place to do that necessarily. And if you're looking for a safe space to do it where... You, feel, you can feel heard and you have others to help process that anger and, and that incident with you, that is preferable. So that my, my encouragement to women is to find those safe spaces where um, they can share that. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, also silence and you have a chapter on silence and you mm-hmm. conclude with reflection questions, inviting the reader to consider how their voices have been silenced, as yeah. well as the important question, what can you do now to reclaim your own voice? Yes. And I was curious if you might share a little bit about how you've been able to reclaim your voice personally as well. Yeah. Well, I, in some ways I'm I have the benefit of being, you know, having just turned 60, which I'm kind of still shocked about, but (laughs) really, I'm 60? Okay. I don't feel 60. So I can see my own journey over time where I think when I, when I was younger, I definitely was a lot more diplomatic um, in terms of, you know, what I said, when I said it or how I said it. I often spoke very aware of like the white audience that was kind of overlooking looking over my shoulder in a way, because I am in Boston and the number of black people in Boston is very small. And, you know, I went through busing, you know, I went to predominantly white schools um, doing, I was involved in the whole busing era in Boston. And, you know, I went to Tufts and that was predominantly white and my graduate school was predominantly white. Like most, most um, African-Americans seem for most people of color, we're in majority white environments. So we may be, you know, code switching, as I say, where, mm-hmm. you know, you're a certain way when you're around white people and then when you're around your own people, you're a lot more relaxed and comfortable and you, it, it just feels like you can let your hair down. And so for me, over time, it's been more and more around my being me. Just being me and mm. being aware of when I'm tempted to code switch or when I'm tempted to just not speak up when I really should speak up. I am a prayerful person, so I am like asking the Lord, am I silently in prayer? Like, you know, what do I need to do in this situation? Is this the moment where I need to confront something outright or do I mm. need to just let it go? And so I, I feel like I'm more open and expressive kind of like the chips fall where they may, but I also am, I seek to 
be led by the Holy Spirit in, in what I say and do. Yeah, so knowing that there are moments when you can sense the Holy Spirit nudging you, this is a moment mm-hmm. when it's time to speak out and other yes. moments realizing it. you don't have to live into your voice fully by speaking out all the time, right? Yeah. And I hear you say that you're really kind of in tune with where God is leading you to use your voice. Yes, yeah. So similarly related to kind of using your voice and reclaiming your voice, you wrote about the significance of lament in mm-hmm. healing from trauma. Can you share more about the importance of lament specifically yeah. as it relates to that healing? Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it very much ties into the whole notion of, of silence because just this lamenting means that we're really aware of the impact that racism has had, that um, the racial trauma has had in our lives. We're in touch with the feelings and we're honest about that. We're honest with God. We're honest with other people. Um, That chapter really focuses on people's journeys to really being able to fully lament and and coming into awareness about things that they had thought when they normalized in a certain way, um, only to realize that it really was masking like some really deep pain Mm. And and lament is a way, you know, as we look at the Psalms, we see David um, as a, a model of one who laments before God. And there's some things that he says. He's like, yeah, kill my enemies. Or, right. Like, God, where are you? And those are things that as believers, we can look at that and go, oh my God, like, can I speak to God that way? Yeah, you can speak mm-hmm. to God that way. David is the apple of God's eye, it says. And so we can have that kind of relationship with God where we're absolutely honest about what happened, what we don't understand, even our questions about what are you doing? What were you doing? God is big enough. He's not shocked. He already knows it, actually. And so I feel like lament is more about our having an authentic relationship with God. We're not putting on a mask. We're not Mm -hmm. saying what we think is Christianly correct. You know, God wants a real relationship with us. And it's just like anybody else, whether it's your partner, husband, whoever, friend, An authentic relationship is one where people can be honest with each other. But undergirding all of that is a sense of that there is love there. And so it's it's an honesty that's not there to kind of brutalize or shame, but an honesty of, you know, as you look at the Psalms and and by the end you see David kind of rally around, okay, this this is what the truth is about who God is. And it's the and it's the same way with us. Yeah. And so you mentioned shame just now too, which leads me to my next question about the chapter on shame. Uh, You bring up imposter syndrome in that chapter. And many of our listeners as women in academia maybe experience that from time to time. Would you share about the connection that you find between shame and imposter syndrome, as well as how women might overcome feeling like they're not enough? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, just fundamentally the difference between shame and guilt Guilt says that you did something wrong. Shame says who you are is wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I think for women in, in academia, and I'm going to speak to women of color, but I think women in general, you know, if we come into a predominantly male environment or where the, you know, it's predominantly men in authority, mm-hmm. uh, we can feel like I don't have actually what it takes to actually be in this space. And there's a level of shame that says, you know, there's something inherently wrong with you. We talked about inter- intersectionality before, but for women of color, it's, you know, because of racism, it's like, like, really, really who you are is wrong. And, and so you come into this environment where you're supposed to present as qualified and you have something important to say and to share. And yet you feel like because of shame that you're an imposter, that eventually they're going to discover that you really don't belong here. So that's the narrative that is the tape that's playing in our heads that we, we don't belong here. We'll get discovered. We'll get kicked out. You know, in some way we will be shamed publicly. And that's really difficult. But what makes it even more difficult is that, and I write this, this line in the book where I said, you know, it's even harder when you're dealing with imposter syndrome when you're in an environment that says that you actually are an imposter. Mm. So, you know, I've worked with women who, you know, are in the academy and they have to deal with 
just the, whether it's subliminal or really outright messages that, you know, somehow you got in here because of affirmative action or the topic that you're choosing to look at, which is vitally important to you and your community is not valuable to the greater society. So therefore it's not valuable. And so that's a difficult, um, that's a difficult place to be in, to be in that kind of environment. So they're really, you really, really, really have to have support in order to um, survive in that kind of an environment. And the places where there is shame, there really needs to be a real real looking at that. If there is shame that, you know, one is carrying because of one's race or ethnicity and and even experiences, talking to a counselor, working through that with a counselor is great. Sharing it with a group of supportive friends is really great. It's important. It's important to have those circles to help you through that because there there are many uh, women who just give up. And just they're just like, mm-hmm. well, it must have been true because they can't deal with just the ongoing assault on their dignity. Yeah, and I'm hearing you say a lot to many of the responses, just the importance of community and not mm-hmm. being alone. Yeah. So kind of shifting gears a bit, recently there's been significant conversation in academia about trigger warnings or content mm-hmm. warnings and whether or not to include those. And, you know, are we just trying to keep everybody safe? Providing a safe space kind of became, that phrase became like sort of making a mockery of it. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear your thoughts as a trauma-informed counselor mm-hmm. about including trigger warnings in content that students might encounter. You know, I, I know that there's a lot of controversy around that and there are people who really present it, you know, in a way that this is kind of um, coddling um, our young people and, you know, they need to be strong. And I just think, you know what, would they say the same thing for someone who, let's say they're hearing impaired or the person is in a wheelchair or, you know, something that's visually obvious or that we can encounter. And we, we've come to a place in the society generally where we're like, okay, you know what, we need to adapt our space or, do larger print for people who, you know, visually impaired, we, we make accommodations. Mm-hmm. And so in a space where there are people who have experienced trauma on a, and we don't know, we don't know. And so being trauma informed really is one of assuming that, you know, just about everybody's experienced trauma on some level. And so if we're going to go into some horrific story about sexual assault and there are three women in there who may have actually encountered it over the last couple of months, do we just say, you know what, we're going to, we're going to share this story. And just as a, just a heads up, you know, it may be triggering to some of you. Like, mm-hmm. is that just respecting the person? Isn't that just like loving your neighbor? I don't, I don't see the big deal actually. Yeah. So somewhat related, you share at the end of the book um, on the chapter on resilience and resurrection, you share about a personal experience at the Legacy Museum in Montgomery. Mm -hmm. Would you be willing to share a bit about what the Legacy Museum is and how your time there shaped you? Yeah. So I went to Montgomery for a conference that was the Impact Movement and the um, Allender Center were co-sponsoring a, I wouldn't say it was a, it was more of a symposium. So there were various people who were kind of operating in this space or starting to, or working with people of color and wanting to figure out like, how do we deal with racial trauma? And so I was on a panel with a number of other folk and it was over the course of a few days and there were small group times and big group presentation and panel discussions. And some of that time was visiting the Legacy Museum, but also the lynching memorial. And I had been aware just in terms of, you know, the history of African-Americans in the U.S. and slavery, and probably more so than the average person, I would say, the average even African-American, just because of being in academic circles and my husband's a, he's a historian. And so, you know, we have a lot of history stuff floating around in our house. And so I went with the group, we went to the lynching memorial and, you know, it's a very sparse space. Um, yet there are these cylinders that are, I forget the, the length, they're almost like six or eight feet long that are suspended from the ceiling. And in, mm-hmm. And etched in every one of them are the names, and whether it was one name or multiple names of individuals who were lynched. 
and the county in which they were lynched and the date. And so some had one name and then there were other counties. There was, I think, a county in Florida where there were so many names on it. This is like an eight foot, like kind of copper, you know, cylinder. It looks like it's not a cylinder, but it looks like, literally looks like a copper. That you could not decipher the names almost because the names were so tiny. They covered. So there were hundreds and hundreds of people who were lynched in that. And so as I went through it, I just thought about my own family. My family originated in Accomack County in Virginia. And, and so just looking for that like where is Accomack County and because there's so many of them of these cylinders suspended it was hard to find it and yet as I went through it there were placards that kind of shared people who were lynched and why they were lynched and and some were you know not some all of them were just either horrifically just awful and some were just like what the person got lynched for that mm-hmm. it's, it was yeah insanity and so I, I went through it and I stopped for a moment. There's a wonderful water fountain there. Uh, not water fountain. There's a whole wall of water in, in, etched in it. You know, there's, there's a message that, you know, I, so I, I left there and I went outside. And outside on the grounds laid out literally like coffins are all of the ones that are inside, the replicas. And their hope is that people will take a replica and bring it to their community and, and mm-hmm. erect it there. And so it was outside that I found the Accomack County one. And there was one lynching there. And, you know, just, it was, it was disturbing. It was, when I looked at all of these laid out on the grounds, just the reality of, of racism really struck me uh, in a way that surprised me. The fact that, you know, there was a connection um, this particular lynching, I think, happened in the late the late 1800s in in Accomack County, and I'm then wondering, like, okay, maybe did my family know this person? Just mm-hmm. kind of those kinds of questions. And then I was able to go back to the the symposium that we were at and in our small groups and be able to process some of some of my feelings of, of anger that was coming out of just sure. anger at just the injustice and. Yeah, lots of swirling thoughts like, okay, God, what is this? Where were you? What's this deal with white people? Just all, you know, <laughs> some of which, you know, was yeah. like, wow, okay, this is this is all coming up for me. And I, at the time, was pretty close to finishing the book, actually. Okay. And this experience that I had there, and then the next day was the Legacy Museum, in which it is in more downtown Montgomery. and. It's right down the street from the Court Fountain, which was the place where they basically sold slaves. You know, mm-hmm. people, the enslaved were kept in pens and and then auctioned off. Just, you know, very, very, very disturbing. And so, but the museum is there. And so the museum, it's incredible. It's small, but I don't know by what I'm evaluating that, but it, it's on the smaller side, but it is so mm-hmm. crammed full of just really some really cutting edge kind of multimedia memorabilia. There's placards and posters and there's some stuff that's more recent and there are things that were more hopeful, but a lot of it were, were things that were visuals that really highlighted the reality of, of trauma of racial trauma over time and how how the journey has gone from slavery to mass incarceration and just the continuum like you could see the continuum of how that mm. has occurred and i was overwhelmed is an understatement at a certain point there's a section where they have civil rights icons and some of them were familiar with some some not but that was it was good to see that it was good to see some of the some videos that they also have there however the enormity of it really hit me. And so I stumbled out of the, I literally stumbled out of the building because I was mm. like over, absolutely overwhelmed. And then I, and I, this is not me. I'm not one to just, anyone knows me. I don't spontaneously like wail and cry in public. I just mm. lost it. I just lost it. And I remember like hunching over and, and just bawling. And I looked up and there was a, a white woman who was in the symposium and she had just come out and she was like, her eyes were watery. She just looked at me and she just mouthed the words, I have no words. Mm. And we both just kind of like 
they had a bookstore. We both kind of stumbled into the bookstore and the people were like, are you okay? I'm like, no, I'm not okay. <laughs> right. I'm not okay. And so I included that whole experience in the book in retrospect because I feel like the Lord really wanted me to be there to, I needed to see that. I needed to see it all in one place to kind of see the continuum of it all in terms of, you know, what came up for me and the places where I still needed healing. I still needed understanding. And and that happened, which was, you know, a wonderful byproduct of me going to the symposium where I'm going to present at. It's always how God does stuff that we, we think it's one thing and he's like, oh, well, it's something else too. And sure. yeah, and it's not just for you, it's for the book and for other people to, to learn from that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely learned from that. I'd heard a little bit about the lynching museum from mm-hmm. a friend who had gone on a civil rights tour a while yeah. ago, but your telling of your experience there really shaped me in the way that I received it. So it was that experience, as you said, was not just for you, but yeah. for the book. And, and I'm grateful that you wrote about it. Thank you. And as you've shared about just throughout encountering painful stories or experiencing painful stories, how do you take care of yourself? How do you practice self-care? How do you stay connected to Jesus and to yeah. hope and his calling? Um, what are, are there particular daily routines or yeah. yeah, what are the ways that you care for yourself? Well, I, yes, I do have daily routines. Am I perfect at them? No, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I do. I know the difference. I know the difference when I don't start my day focusing on the Lord and in quiet. And so it may or may not involve Bible reading, but in prayer and surrendering the day to the Lord. And it's important. And I have a sense of like, okay, what are my priorities for today? Because I have a laundry list of things that I need to do. And so if I don't upfront prioritize that, I notice a difference in my day Mm -hmm. that I kind of fumble through the day. And then I'm kind of playing catch up and that. I think that it's important throughout the day to keep checking in. But when I don't have that morning quiet time, then it's a mad scramble of trying to throw up what I call McDonald's prayers. You know, it's really like quick, you know, fast food. It doesn't really taste that good, but, but it's something. Right? <laughs> so I prioritize prayer. I prioritize trying to really, what are the things that bring in beauty and life? Because there's so much that's so troubling about the world and whether it's even our own stories and my own experiences, that I have to see where is God? What is the, what's the beauty? What's the, I'm not a Pollyanna. My head is not in the sand. <laughs> but the reality is there's, there's some good stuff happening too. It's not all horrible and bad. And I try to look for that. You know, I live by the ocean. So, okay, there's mm-hmm. the ocean. It's the encountering nature. I love art. So going to art galleries, art museums, I paint. Mm-hmm. I also do crafts. And so it's engaging on that level. It's spending time with friends who really pour into me. And, and also knowing, like, of those friends, like, I want to be mercenary, like, what are they good for? But, <laughs> some, but some friends are good to just go to a movie with, period. That's it. And it's fine. You know, then there are some other friends that you know, they'll lament with you cry with you, pray with you. That's great. They're important too. Who are those people? You know, my husband, we spend a significant amount of time just praying for each other, praying for our kids or family members and friends. Those things feed me. Attending church, being in, you know, community with other believers, worship time, listening to worship music online, that feeds me. Thank you. Again, I'm hearing that theme of social connection and finding people that are life-giving or people that are just fun that you can go to a movie with even, which is still life-giving, even if it's not like a huge depth. And then finally, we like to conclude the podcast with the same question to all of our guests. Is there a particular quote, scripture song, or other set of words that has been meaningful to you lately? And can you share about why it resonates with you at this time? So I recently saw the Harry movie. And the theme song to that just was like, wow. There actually is a video on YouTube of the actress who played Harriet singing the song. It's kind of in studio, um, but they also have clips from the movie. It's just very powerful. And, you know, she's this, this whole call of I'm taking my people with me and we're like, we're going to freedom. And she kind of ends that song with the scripture that says, I go 
prepare a place for you. And that just, it's such a powerful movie. And, you know, there's lots of controversy about how accurate is it, whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the bottom line line is it's not a documentary. It was a movie. (laughs) (laughs) But it was one where there was this real deep abiding sense of this woman's faith. And so as this song is being sung, I just, I think about this movie and that song and then the my book that's the end goal is like going to freedom going towards freedom mm-hmm. and and ultimately that Jesus is saying that to that he goes you know and he prepares a place for us and that even just affirms affirms for me just a sense that in the body of Christ like we have a home we have a place we belong so that that's one that really is really blessing me these days. And it's not overtly Christian, but it is. And then there's a South African group called WWW, which is We Will Worship. And the song is Tula, which is T-H-U-L-A, Tula, Tula. And it's beautiful. It's just very, it's very restful. It's, it's a reminder for me, those times where I feel like oh, kind of wired and stressed of just kind of quiet. Um, and listen, and that God is with me, and you know I'm not alone. So it's those I would say those two are really speaking to me in the space where I'm at these days, where a lot of talking about the book and promoting and speaking and writing and exciting time, but a lot on my plate. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, thank you again, Sheila, so much for your time and your wisdom and knowledge. And we're really grateful. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.